Tonight we're going to be in Judges chapter 10. The last time we covered Judges, we saw the destruction wrought by the wicked leader Abimelech. And tonight we're going to see more tragedy as a result of the children of Israel's descent into decadency. Judges is a, a, a sad book because it's just the constant cycle of sin with these people. And uh, if it gets any worse, I may have to start handing out mood elevators at the beginning of the study. So, you know, we're going to see what happens here. But there's some good lessons that we can learn. Uh, So 10, verse 1, it said, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. (laughs) Little Snickers there, Dodo. And he dwelt in... He dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. Now, there's nothing terribly notable about this man except he judged Israel for 23 years. There's nothing notable until we look at his name. Actually, it's Tolo in the Hebrew, which can mean red, can mean worm, and actually there was an indigenous red maggot. Um, So that's the guy's name. Yeah. Imagine growing up with that name. But the name implies that he's, he's a nobody, right? He's a nobody in life. But Psalm 22.6, which is the Psalm of the Cross, that word is used again. I looked it up in my uh, Hebrew concordance. And in Psalm 22.6, which was a picture of the Messiah dying on the cross, he says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. There's that word again, tolo, worm, crimson maggot. So, 22.6 describes another seemingly nobody, but that nobody later saved the world from their sins. And of course, that's Jesus. Turns out to be the Messiah. Now, there's an interesting thing about this indigenous red maggot to that Middle Eastern area. And this worm, actually, when it's, it has these babies in it, it's a weird kind of cycle that it has and it. It, it, it climbs up a tree, and then it affixes itself to the tree and kind of explodes itself, and the babies come out from the death of this worm, and they feast on the blood, and they live. It's kind of really gross, isn't it? But if you think about it, Jesus Christ put himself on a tree. He, in a sense, died willingly, like that worm, and uh, by his blood we're given everlasting life. So it, there's a lot of symbolism there. Of course, Jesus is not a, a literal worm, uh, but you, you can see the amazing symbolism in the scripture. So it's pretty wild. All right, verse 3. After him arose Yair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Yair to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Camon. In verse 4, it says, Havath Yair, which basically means uh, in Hebrew, the tent villages of Yair. So you have another judge, Yair, who judged Israel for 22 years. A little is spoken of him, enough for us to see that he was a somebody. The word Yair means he enlightens. He had 30 sons, on 30 donkeys in 30 towns, which may indicate that this man was a man of wealth. 
So what does that basically go to show us for these two, Tola and Yair, these two judges? Not a lot is said about them, but what we see is that sometimes God uses nobodies and sometimes God uses somebodies. But either way, God is sovereign and he can use whoever he wishes to fulfill his purposes. So that's kind of neat, isn't it? You know, the Apostle Paul says there's not man, woman, Jew, Gentile, slave free. We're all under the same tent when it comes to our Lord. Verse 6, this is where it kind of gets sad. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. After reading this list, you wonder if there's any gods that were left that they forgot to serve. (laughs) They leave God and they follow all these pagan idols. With some people, they sin hard and they go for broke. There's a philosophy out there. If you're going to sin, you might as well make it worthwhile. It's a foolish philosophy, obviously inspired by Satan, but the attitude is, well, I'm already going to be in trouble, so I might as well make the most out of it. And they certainly made the most out of it. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he, God, sold them, his children, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Philistia and Ammon, if you are interested in in geography, if you were to look down at the map of Israel, on the east side were the Ammonites, and on the west side were the Philistines. So Israel was kind of smack dab in the center of these two people groups. And we see God sold them. Try to wrap your mind around that statement. And I try to really point that out as I'm reading it. He, God, sold them, his children, into, into bondage. I was having a discussion with my chief of police um, uh, three or four weeks ago. It wasn't about me, but he said his, his, his response about a disciplinary thing was, he said, sometimes you have to hurt someone in, a, in order to be able to help them. It's pretty neat. And, and I thought about that. It's that whole theme of, of discipline. Sometimes people have to be hurt a little bit before they can be helped. What does the Bible say? We either fall on the cornerstone, right? We either, either fall on the rock, Jesus, and we're broken, indicating we're broken. We need him to, to mend our wounds and to get back up on our feet. Or we can either fall on him and be broken, or the cornerstone can fall on us and grind us to powder, a picture of oblivion obliterated. There's nothing left for you. So it's good to be hurt at times. It's good to have that discipline because it gets our attention. And it said the Lord's anger was hot. This is a cause and effect uh, situation. All right. Verse 8 and 9. From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So that's the east side of the Jordan. Um, Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now, Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan. Again, if you, I used to hand out those maps a lot in your mind. The Jordan River really was the eastern boundary to the nation of Israel. However, instead of going into the promised land, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh stayed on the east side. So whenever there was an attack on Israel, the river was a natural boundary, but because 
those two and a half tribes didn't realize the full promise of God, they would get attacked and harassed first. Right? So they get it first. Um, but this problem eventually uh, deals with those two and a half tribes and then spills over westward into the heart of, of Israel. Okay? But uh, imagine 18 years of oppression. That's a little less than half of my life. I can't imagine that many years being oppressed by a brutal warlike people. Now, we don't, you know, and I don't know if any of you are from other countries, I don't think so, but uh, in our country it's hard to imagine being oppressed by a foreign enemy because we have freedom in, in America. So sometimes when we read the Bible we have to take our minds and wrap it around what's being said and really meditate on the, the torture that these people were under. But what's really sad is that could have been avoided. They didn't have to go down that road, right? Verse 10. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. It appears that there's, you start to see, and, and I'm going to go, there's some questions at the end that I thought were kind of neat that we're going to go through a little bit, but um, do it a little bit different than we normally do it. But what you see is there's a start of repentance here. However, God appears to take the stance, you know, I've bailed you out so often, this is becoming a pattern. <laughs> you know, I, I really have a problem with this, guys. Verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of, of distress. That hurts. Actually, Jeremiah 7.16, another great prophet of God, he felt for the people. I believe it was the, uh, the Babylonians that were coming to, to oppress them. And in Jeremiah 7.16, God says to Jeremiah, Therefore... Do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? And, of course, he, he talks about how they um, provoke him to anger and how they worshipped other gods. So it got to the point where God said to even his own prophets, don't even make intercession for them. Because Jeremiah was a type of Christ. He was an interceder. And God said, before you even start praying for the children of Israel, don't even bother, because I'm not going to hear you. That's how bad it got. Imagine hearing that. You know what? You got a problem? You chose those gods? Go cry out to them. Of course, they're not going to do anything for them, because they're inanimate. They have no life in them. In other words, go wallow in your sin. It's all yours now. A friend of mine and pastor, Kevin Hay, who spoke about him uh, two months ago at our church, he has some really good pithy phrases. And one of the phrases is, now go sit in stupid. <laughs> you want to do something stupid? Now go sit in stupid. I really like that. It's kind of catchy. And it kind of like God saying to them, go sit in stupid for a while. You know, go wallow in this, this mud that you wanted so bad. And it, sometimes it can come off if, if somebody has a, a, a hardcore pattern of a grievous sin and, you know, certain sins, they... they, they some of you may have them in your family or friends or people that you know, and they just, after a while, they, they have this pattern and they manipulate. And, you know, as a Christian, sometimes you may have to come off a little hard and tell them, go sit in stupid for a while. I'm not going to help you out. 
You know, this is something that you have to deal with. Um, and it's quite biblical. And some may say, hey, man, you're not showing the love of Christ. Well, I don't agree with that. First Corinthians 5, just to digress a little bit, the Apostle Paul speaks about some awful sinful uh, situations going on in the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And he says, furthermore, if you have someone who calls themselves a Christian and is covetous or an extortioner or an idolater or a divisive person, uh, don't even eat with that person. And again, in our society, we might say, well, man, that's not showing love. But it's right here in the scripture. What does it mean to deliver somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so the spirit will be saved? What it means is that if you don't teach them tough love, if you don't show discipline, they'll, they'll just completely go off and their salvation may be at stake. But if you deliver their flesh over to a Satan for a while and let him buffet the flesh, the spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. You see what discipline does, right? And that's a, the questions are really going to hit home because I'm going to kind of try to tie everything together. And even Matthew 18, Jesus talks about the, the three steps of, of, uh, of offenses in the church. And the third step, if the first two are ignored by the person who's offending, Jesus says the third step, let the church go to that person. And if he doesn't li- listen to the church, kick him out. This is Jesus, meek and mild Jesus. He says, um, uh, treat them like a tax collector or a heathen. Let's send them out into the world. Pretty heavy stuff, but it's important. God shows love, God shows grace, but God also shows discipline. Okay, and Jesus continued that. Verse 15 and 16. Then the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you, only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel, his children. And you see, you see the steps, the progressive steps, and that's important. We're going to get to that. When is it time to say enough? Again, there's a goal here. The goal is restoration. That's always the goal when somebody is wayward. When that sheep is wayward, why does the shepherd break his legs and carry him around? He's teaching that sheep. All right? He's teaching them so that the sheep can be saved, so that sheep doesn't keep running off and get attacked by the wolves or get caught in a thicket or is now hungry because the sheep is lost. So why does the shepherd do that and break the legs of the sheep? Because he loves the sheep. It's important stuff to understand. God was ready to come to their aid after enduring enough discipline. Verse 17, two more verses, and we're going to make sense of it all. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is setting the stage for chapter 11, where the next judge comes in, where God finally raises up this judge, to deliver them again, and his name is Jephthah, and we'll see that. So, conclusion. Five questions, or five points. Number one, how far do we go before we bail someone out with a pattern of sin? Good question, isn't it? You know, um, it could be, could be drug addiction. Drug addiction is big with uh, those who, who turn to manipulation. They steal from their own families. Believe me, I see it on both sides in both of my callings. Uh, so what do you do? It's a case-by-case basis. Is it a, a manipulation or is it a true repentance? Uh, is there a history? Is there a lesson that could be involved? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. The second point, 
When we do finally bail them out, how long does it take to reestablish the trust that was broken? Again, it's an individual, case-by-case basis, and we have to ask some of those same questions. Um, the last time maybe you immediately forgave, and we're going to go in the difference between forgiving and trust, and you immediately gave that trust back, gave them a chance, and they did it again, and they did it again. Well, each time it's going to take longer to rebuild that trust. It's almost like when a wrecking ball knocks a building down. Okay? It takes, it takes what? Half an hour to knock a building down? Less? You know how long it takes brick by brick to put that building right back up again? And that's the trust. When something wicked is done to that building, it happens in, in a heartbeat. But it takes a long time to start putting those bricks together, mortar by mortar, lining them up, and building that edifice again of trust. Three, how is forgiveness different than allowing the consequences for sin? One is a hard issue, and one is a good life lesson. Okay? Forgiveness. If somebody wrongs us, to me, forgiveness is a releasing of the, the anger that you may feel, releasing of the hurt, releasing of the maybe sinful thoughts against that person. So forgiveness is really an attitude of the heart. You, in your heart, you release that person from that, 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 that anger that you have, that, that hatred, vitriol towards that person. It's released. And you actually can see that person and not all of a sudden start thinking wicked things about them, right? However, what about allowing consequences for sin? Now, that's totally different. Uh, that's a, that can be considered a good life lesson. We keep talking about lessons and discipline here. Um, to continue to allow bad behavior and sin, continue it, continue it, continue it, that's a perversion of grace. We talked about that on Sunday. What does repentance look like? And this is where it really brings everything and solidifies together. Number four, what does repentance look like? Probably it looks like something that we don't see very often. Americans are haughty. Americans are prideful. People forget it. On the East Coast, New Jerseyans, hey, you can't tell me what to do. Do you know who I am? You see that all the time, right? Attitudes in, in this area. So repentance is something that we don't see that often. And honestly, we don't see that much in the church either. Um, it goes back to a few things in the story. I'm just going to read a few quick verses. Here's a progression of repentance. Go into verse 10. First thing that happened is the children of Israel said, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. This is beautiful. I love God's word because of the lessons. Number one, this is confession. The first step of repentance looks like confession. This is what we did. I heard a, pre- a preacher who said when you, when you confess your sins to God and you're alone and you, you give, the sins, give God the sins, 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and confess uh, uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The preacher said, name your sins. I like that, and I do that. Oh, Lord. When you name your sins, you bring it up. You know, it's, they're ugly. Get it up, get it out. Not just, all right, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Hey, um, you know what I could use right now? And you start asking them for stuff, your wish list. Name the sins. First step was they named the sins. Second step, verse 15. Children of Israel come to the Lord again and they say, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. Second step is, whatever the consequences are, we accept them. We would prefer that you deliver us, but whatever God seems best to you, it is what it is. So that's the second step of repentance. Now, do we see this that often in the world? No, we don't. Second step. Whatever the consequences are, they are. We accept them. Third step. Verse 16, so they, the children of Israel, put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. 
and, he, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The third step is beautiful. It's action. What does repentance look like? The third step, action. Action speak louder than words. Make it right. Three words. If somebody was to ask me, well, how do I fix this? I would say confess it. I would say suffer the consequences. And I would say three, make it right. And a lot of people don't want to do that because it's, it can be a humiliating process to make it right. Children of Israel did it. They made it right. And then God released them. Um, I can't read my own handwriting here. Okay. The fruits of repentance. What did John the Baptist say? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Right? So there is repentance and there's fruit that comes out of repentance. And you know what that fruit looks like, these three steps. I love this. Not the person who's in sin, not ignoring it, not obfuscating it, clouding it, not um, being defensive, not, well, it's your fault, shifting blame, not running away. These, this is a great lesson. <laughs> this is something I should teach on a Sunday, right? It's good stuff. Okay. And then five. The joyful side of studying sin is when we appreciate, <laughs> when I confess my sins to God and I name those sins, I appreciate Jesus so much more. Because there's no way in, in heaven, in, in, on the earth, or in hell, there's no way I'm getting to God by my own merits when I name those sins. So when we study sin, sometimes people say, oh, it sounds like one of them old preachers. You're always talking about sin. There's a lot of sin in the Old Testament. There's a lot of sin in the New Testament, right? There's a lot of sin in our lives. But the beauty of, of studying sin is that we appreciate the Savior more when we realize the depths of our depravity. Let's pray.